0: Today on Something You Should Know, want to know the secret to happiness? I'll tell you what happy people say it is. Then all your life people tell you no, and it's what you do with that no that really matters.
1: It's like you're going down a road and a tree falls across the road. Now that tree is a no. So you say, hmm, what are all the possible ways I can either get around that no, over that no, under that no, or turn the no around and make it work for me?
0: Plus the reality of going to live concerts. It's really not as much fun as we think it is. And why you need more friends and how to get them. And you probably do need more friends.
2: One in four Americans have zero friends to confide in and this number has tripled in the last 30 years. One in three Americans above the age of 65, one in two above the age of 85 is socially isolated and completely alone.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. And such a good thing you tuned in today because we're going to start with the secrets to happiness. For his book, The Five Secrets You Must Know Before You Die, Author John Izzo surveyed 250 truly happy people to find out what makes them so happy. And here's what they said First, get outside yourself. Obsessive focus on oneself is one of the greatest sources of unhappiness. You can't be happy wallowing in your own problems. So go focus on something else or someone else. Stop judging your life. Life is not a contest, it's something to be enjoyed. So be in a place of gratitude and be thankful for all the things you do have and not worry about the things you don't have. Have no regrets. It's better to take a risk and fail than to never try and always wonder what if. And give more than you take. Do those things and you'll be a lot happier. And that is something you should know. You know what stops people from finding success and getting what they want? Think about it. What stops you from getting what you want? The answer usually boils down to because someone says no. For some people, hearing no means no. It's upsetting, demoralizing, confidence-crushing. It's no. But maybe no doesn't always have to mean no. B.J. Gallagher is a speaker and prolific author with several books to her name. One of them is called Yes Lives in the Land of No, and she's here to talk about what to do with all those no's that will inevitably come your way in life. Hi, B.J., welcome. So, you write about a lot of different topics. What attracted you to this?
1: I think trying to understand what makes human beings tick is probably the most fascinating subject, and it seems just endless. Um, And so what attracted me to this particular topic was, why are some people more successful than others? And what is it that happens when people hear the word no? Why is it that some people are able able to overcome that and keep going, and others go, that's it, I give up?
0: So why is that? Why, Why is it that some people would take no as no and other people don't? And is it something that it's just part of who we are or is it a learned behavior or or what
1: i think it's some of both but an awful lot of it is learned it has to do with childhood conditioning and you know how you were how your behavior was corrected and shaped and molded by the people who took care of you but that's the good news because it's learned means we can unlearn it and we can relearn some new habits that'll help make us more successful.
0: So it's really about how you process that word. When someone says no, what do you do with it?
1: Exactly, and what people, well, there's two kinds of people. Some people hear, when they hear no, what they hear is, you're an idiot, you're a failure, why did you bring me this idea, who do you think you are, if you need to have an opinion, I'll give it to you. Other people hear just the opposite. When they hear no, what they hear is, maybe later, I'm busy now, don't bother me, um, get me some more information. So that they hear a delay, but they don't hear a final answer.
0: Well, isn't that interesting that two people can hear the same person say no and hear two different things?
1: Well, first of all, not all no's are created equal. And we learn this as chi- A lot of it comes from childhood. We learn this as children. Because children are very good at pushing boundaries, and how those boundaries are reinforced makes a difference in how they deal with boundaries later on. You know, and it may also be that some of it is, is innate—that some children are more sensitive, um, you know, feel less confident. I mean, we know that optimism and, and, and pessimism are, are, are behavior traits or, or sort of attributes that people. We're born with a certain disposition, but we can modify that disposition. So some people are naturally pessimists and some people are naturally optimists. But that doesn't mean you can't shape that and turn it around. So a pessimist, when he or she hears no, is going to go, oh, well, see, I knew. It's hopeless. No point in even trying. An optimist will say, hmm, well, I wonder why not. Maybe if I push a little bit, I can get them to change their mind. And sometimes even kids within the same family. I'm an optimist. My brother's a pessimist. And uh, he hears no, he gives up. I hear no, and I think, hmm, let me get more creative.
0: So how does somebody who hears no the way your brother hears no move from that to hearing no the way you hear no as
1: an optimist? First of all, they have to believe that it's possible. So to, to turn no's into yeses, First of all, it's an inside job. You have to really, and and it helps to see it in other people. Now, why is it that that person doesn't take no for an answer and they're successful? I take no for an answer and I'm not successful. What can I learn from them? So it helps to see somebody else doing it. And then you go, well, if they can do it, then maybe I can learn to do it. So you have to start to believe that it's possible and seeing other people do it helps you know that it's possible. It's, you don't have to just take it on faith. You can actually see it in other people. That's the very first step. From then on, it's simply learning tools and techniques, developing thicker skin, becoming, becoming more of a long-distance runner rather than a sprinter in life. Just know that the yes is out there, but it may take you a long time to get to it.
0: So what are some of those tools and techniques?
1: Well, one of my favorites, I just have a simple word that I use, and that word is next. So when I get a rejection, like in the book publishing business, I send off book proposals all the time. I get a lot of rejection. In the beginning, when I got rejection, I would cry, get depressed, think nobody wants it. What I've learned to do, what I've taught myself to do, is instead of cry, get depressed, and complain, I simply say, oh, okay, next, what that means is I'm one no closer to the yes that I'm seeking. So basically, I reframed the situation.
0: Yeah, and, and I know a lot of salespeople think that way or learn to think that way, that, that I'm, every no is one no closer to yes. But just for some reason, it, it's easier for some people than others to think that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Part of it, I think, also, Mike, is being creative. It's like you're going down a road and a tree falls across the road. Now, that tree is a no. You're not going to drive past the tree. So you say, hmm, well, I really want to get where I'm going. So what are my options? One option is I go around the tree. Uh, one option is I get some boards and I try to make a ramp up over the tree. Um, another is, oh, a guy with a, uh, a tow truck comes along and I get him to, tow the tree out of the way. Or I just happen to have a chainsaw in my, um, in the trunk of my car. So I, I get it out, chop it up, and not only do I get where I'm going, I load the wood in the back of my truck and I sell it. I make some money off the no. So a lot of it is practicing divergent thinking. Say, seeing a no and saying, what are all the possible ways I can either get around that no, over that no, under that no, Or turn the no around and make it work for me.
0: It sure makes you wonder why there are so many no's in the world. It's no this, no that. Everything is no.
1: It's safer and easier for people to say no. If you say no, it means you don't have to change, you don't have to do anything differently, you don't have to take a risk. and, and, And to say yes means to roll up your sleeves and dig your hands into life. When it's always safer to say no, even when no means death, that there's a part of all of us that wants to, even the most optimistic person, sometimes says no because I'm too tired or I don't want to change or it's too risky and I don't want to fail. I don't want to look stupid or what does everybody else think? Well, if they say yes, then I'll say yes, but I don't want to be the first one to say yes because I might be wrong.
0: If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking with B.J. Gallagher. She's the author of the book, Yes, Lives in the Land of No. So, B.J., sometimes you'll hear a no, though, like you'll have a good idea and try to convince somebody you have a good idea, and they'll say no, because maybe it isn't a good idea. And to keep banging your head against the wall trying to sell this good idea may be a big waste of time.
1: That That's a really good point you raised there, Mike. And that's a tough question. When is no final? And when, um, as I said, not not all no's are created equal, and sometimes no is the right answer. Sometimes no can keep you from doing something stupid or something really dangerous. But there's no hard and fast rules to, to know when that is. You just have to sort of learn by experience um, which no's are worth doing battle with and which no's aren't. It has to do with how much you believe in what you're after, what your passion is what your tolerance for pain is i mean sometimes you just you just run out of steam and say oh i give up um and so i yeah i wish i had a, a very clear simple guideline to give you on that but i but i don't sometimes no is the right answer so we we just learn a lot like we learn most of life from trial and error you just try again and try again and try again and and then after a while you learn which nose to challenge and and which ones to let go. You know, if I send a book proposal out and 20 publishers reject it, I say, "Well, okay. There's another 30 publishers out there. I think I'll I think I'll keep trying." Or I might say, "Uh, eh, you know, maybe it's not such a good book proposal after all. Maybe I'll just go write something else instead." But it depends. It really depends on how passionate i am about the idea that the classic story there is the guys who wrote chicken soup for the soul got rejected by 53 publishers just about every publisher there was their literary agent fired them and said i'm sorry i can't sell this book called chicken soup for the soul nobody wants to read anthologies i'm done and they found one little tiny publisher in florida who said "Hmm." Okay, we've been wanting to try something different. We'll try your little anthology. And now, a hundred million books later, the rest is history. One of my favorite quotes is by uh, Thomas Edison. He says, I have not failed. I've simply found 10,000 ways that didn't work.
0: And that's a great way to be able to look at it because you know some people would stop at five thousand or a hundred or one. I mean, it's it's tough to imagine working on something and trying it ten thousand different ways, and still keep trying.
1: And and that's and it's a very personal decision. Only you can decide how many no's you're willing to go through to get your yes. How important. Is that yes? And and the yes may be different. It may be the yes you're looking for in a job promotion may, is, is going to be very different than the yes you're looking for in the right house to buy or the right person to marry or whether or not to have a third child. I mean, you know, it's, it's not all yeses are created equal either.
0: Now, I know you say that dealing with the topic of no is very important at work and, and in dealing with your boss. Why so?
1: Bosses are the people who probably say no more often than anyone else. Um, they have people who work for them. They have people who want something. They want a raise. They want attention. They want time. They want approval on a project. Um, you know, bosses have a lot of people making making demands on them. And therefore, they say no a lot more than the rest of us do. They're just in a position to say no more than more than the rest of us. The first thing to think about if your boss is the person who says no to you most often is, where is the no coming from? Because the, that boss's no may be driven by fear, like uh, don't make me look bad, I don't want to take a, a risk, It may be driven simply by busyness. I've got too much on my plate already. I can't handle another project. It may be driven by laziness. I don't want to work hard. So the more I know about my boss, the more I can manage the boss and manage my way around those no's. For instance, if my boss is driven by fear, then the no's I get are also going to be driven by fear So my job is to reassure the boss that doing what I'm asking is actually going to be less risky than doing nothing. If the boss's no is driven by this might make me look bad, then my challenge is to point out how saying yes will make the boss look good and saying no might make them look bad. So I really have to understand what's behind the no before I can turn that no around with my boss.
0: And do you think that's easy for people to figure out?
1: I think it is. The key to bosses is just, um, first first of all, not taking them personally. You know, too many of us turn our bosses into our parents, and then when the boss says or does something, we, it hurts our feelings. Women are particularly susceptible to this much more than men, that we over-personalize things. So first of all, you know, whatever your boss says, no don't take it don't take it personally it's not personal it's just business and then to really watch listen ask questions and and your boss is always giving you signals about what's important to him or her you can tell by what's in your boss's office if your boss has a, has lots of diplomas and awards and degrees and things like that that boss is oriented by power and achievement. And if you know that about the boss, then you can point out how giving you a yes will help that get them more power because the question is always what's in it for them. If on the other hand your boss has pictures of the the company softball team, pictures of their their pets, their family, seascapes, bowls of flowers, things like that, that boss is motivated by Achievement. I'm sorry. By uh, affiliation, and that boss needs to be popular. They want to be loved more than they want to be respected. And so you say, well, if we do this, boy, it's really going to win points with the troops. So you, so you use that. Another signal is to watch for um, data, data on a boss's wall, like charts, graphs, maps, sales figures, things like that. That boss is really oriented by achievement more than anything else. The three things that bosses are motivated by are power, affiliation, and achievement. So once you know that, then you, you've got that leverage, and you simply speak their language to turn that no around.
0: It does seem, though, that some people are better at sizing up people the way you just described. Some people are, like salespeople, uh, are better at that, I think, than <laughs> than I am.
1: And See, salespeople... They are amateur psychologists. Some of them are even professional psychologists. And children are pretty good at sizing people up. You know, children are just really intuitive. They pay a lot of attention to the giants around them because their survival depends on their ability to manipulate the people around them, the big people around them. The rest of us somehow have forgotten that, but if we could relearn. Like, here's another thing to know about your boss. Is your boss a reader? or a listener, simply knowing that can transform your relationship with your boss. Because the bottom line is bosses need information. They need to be informed. They don't like surprises. But how you get that information to your boss makes all the difference. If your boss is a reader and you go in and you're just chatting and talking all the time, the boss isn't going to get the information he or she needs. And you can tell because their eyes glaze over. And you go, oh, he's not listening anymore. If, on the other hand, your boss is a listener, and I've learned this the hard way, Mike, (laughs) the last boss I had in a large organization was a reader and not a listener. And so I'm sorry, he was a listener and not a reader, but I'm a reader. So I was sending him emails and reports and memos all the time, and I got back nothing. I got silence, and I thought, what's wrong? I'm trying to keep him informed. I'm leaving a paper trail. What am I doing wrong? And what I suddenly realized, you know, we t- there's that old saying, we teach what we need to learn. <laughs> and I realized, oh, he's a listener. He's not a reader. He didn't want to read anything longer than one page. He wanted me to come down and brief him. He wanted to argue about it. He wanted to debate. He was a verbal, oral person he wasn't a visual person. He wasn't a reader. Once I realized that and I quit sending him all the memos, our relationship improved dramatically.
0: Are there? Do you have any other ways that people can maybe read their boss better?
1: Another thing to pay attention to is energy level. We all have biorhythms. There are certain times of the day when we're more energetic, we're more alert than others. Um, so pay attention. Is your boss a morning person? Is your boss an afternoon person? Is your boss a night owl? Timing is everything. Timing can be the single reason why you get a no instead of a yes. You just hit the boss at the right at the wrong time. So by paying attention to when is the boss most receptive, in the morning when he's got his coffee, is he in there at 6 a.m., or is your boss someone who's better in the afternoon after she's had lunch and she's relaxed? Timing is everything.
0: You know, it really seems like the message is that if you want someone to say yes, it isn't just about what you want them to say yes to. It's about understanding who they are, the situation you're in, the time of day, the type of person they are. All of those factors collectively make a big difference as to whether or not you're going to get a yes or a no. B.J. Gallagher has been my guest. The book is Yes Lives in the Land of No. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes for this episode. Thanks, BJ. Statistically speaking, we have fewer good friends today than people did 25 years ago. Good friends as in people you can confide in. Not social media friends, but real close, be-in-the-same-room kind of personal friends. I know I don't have as many friends as I used to. I, I know a lot of people who can say that same thing. When I just look around, I mean, I don't know my neighbors like my parents knew their neighbors. We are seemingly more isolated. And given that human beings are social creatures, this is probably not such a good thing. One person who's trying to do something about this is Rata Agrawal. She's an entrepreneur, investor, inventor, speaker, and lifelong community builder. She founded Daybreaker, which is a grassroots early morning dance phenomenon that began in 2013 as a social experiment and is now in over 23 cities across North America, Europe, and Asia with over 350,000 loyal members. She's also the author of a book called Belong, Find Your People, Create Community, and Live a More Connected Life. Hi Radha. So you're clearly a big proponent of people being more connected, having close friends, and being part of a community. So why do you think, why do you think this is so important?
2: I mean, it is uh, the human experience. It is in our DNA to belong, and we cannot actually survive as a species without it. I mean, think about it. Cheetahs and bears are stronger and faster than we are. Um, but we're at the top of the food chain because we're the best at collaborating, the, we're the best at skill-sharing, we're the best at storytelling. So
0: so if we're programmed to belong, if we're required by nature to be part of groups, that why is it so hard? Why why do people have such a difficult time today m- making friends?
2: Because we don't know how to make friends anymore. I mean, we haven't prioritized communities. I mean, think if you think about it, when was the last time you wrote down a list of the qualities you're looking for in a friend, right? We do this for our, our romantic lives, right? We write down what we're looking for in a romantic partner. We write down what we're looking for in a professional career. We do all these exercises for ourselves in those areas but we rarely, if ever, do them for our friendships.
0: Well, I think one of the problems people have, I remember a time in my life where I thought, you know, I, I wish I had more friends, and I sat down and thought about, well, what oh. How, how do you do that how do,
2: exactly where, where
0: do you go uh, who who uh so so dive into that how do you do that how do you make friends because when you right. go well, when I, you go and ask somebody will you be my friend <laughs>
2: <laughs> i mean it's almost like that right but um I bought every book I could find um, on community building when I started building my own community um, daybreaker, which is now you know half a million people in 25 cities around the world. And I've spent now the last you know, 10 years of my career building communities. Um, but what I realized in buying all the books that I could find was that they all asked the question or answer the question, why is it important to belong, right? Why is community important? But none of them actually really talked about how, how do we belong? So I, they so I really wanted to offer that, um, you know, those tips and tools. And so, to, to belong, it starts with a, with a deep adventure within, right? You have to go in to go out is my mantra for making friends and building community. And I think so often in this journey, we're looking outside of ourselves. We're saying, who you know, who's out there who can be my friend? How can I, you know, how can I make a friend today to go to the movies with without asking ourselves wait a minute, do they align with my values, my interests, my abilities? Are they really connected to what I'm connected to? You know, how can I actually um, spend some time getting gooey and, and comfortable with myself first? Um, Really take the time to go inside of ourselves before we get out there and and look for our friendship. So, for example, you know, one of the things I ask you to do is write down the five people with whom you're spending the most time with today and ask yourself, are they grandfathered in? Are they bringing you up? Are they bringing you down? Um, Is your only friend your spouse? Um, the, one of the things I noticed, and, and of course the stats have, you know prove that as well, is when I ask men, in particular older men, who their best friend is, the, all of them say it's their wife. And then when I say, well, when you remove your wife, who else is there that you can confide in? And particularly the older demographic, they don't have any because they've been taught... To grow a pair, you know, you don't need anybody. You're fine on your own emotions. What's that vulnerability? Why? And and then now add a layer of digital, add a layer of, of social media onto the mix. And now we're even more confused and lost than ever. So women and men, not to mention women are comparing themselves more than ever online. And, and, and having these sort of judgment moments uh, because of social media, and it inflames us and so social media has made us much more sensitive. Um, look how politically polarized our country is, and um, just you know how quick we are to to write off our friends. Oh, they made one mistake in the comment they made i 'm never speaking to them again we 're just very, very sensitive. We've forgotten how to forgive each other. We have forgotten how to have nuanced conversations. Um, and so one of the things that I'm, I'm really passionate about is, is getting back to the basics of, wait, what is the most important thing to survive and thrive? And that is to belong.
0: As you said, though, I mean, older people, especially uh, when you ask them about their friendships, they, they say, you know, emotions, what's that? If you were to tell an older person, or any person who really hasn't connected on this that you need to go on a journey within and you need to look inside and people are going to go what? You know, I mean I don't I don't even know what that really means.
2: So let's okay, so let's do let's do this exercise together. So step 1 is write down three columns. Just draw three columns. Column 1 is what are all the qualities I'm looking for in a friend? So I want friends to talk about ideas and not each other. I want friends who are interesting and interested. I want friends who go to the gym and like to work out and and think of wellness as a as an important part of their day. I want friends who say f yes and lean in to life and adventure. I want friends who are enthusiastic and playful. Right, so I wrote down all these qualities of looking for a friend. And then column two was all the qualities I didn't want in a friend. I didn't want shoulder shruggers. <laughs> I didn't want negative Nellies, Netflix and chillers. You know, chillers. I didn't want negativity and and so on and so forth. wrote down everything. And column three, perhaps the most important column, was all the qualities that I needed to embody in order to attract the friends that I wanted. So I needed to be less of a workaholic, right? I had to put down my laptop and stop canceling on my friends and being a flake. I was named most flaky uh, friend at our our Christmas party uh, three years ago, four years ago, and I just couldn't believe... That I'm a community builder who is also flaky, you know. So I now had to turn the mirror on myself. Like, what was my energy when I showed up? When I walked in the door somewhere, was I bringing people up or bringing people down? What was my um, what was you know, what was my energy like? So so really facing myself was a really wonderful first step. And those three columns were the beginning of a life-changing 30s. I'm 39 now, and from 30 to 39, I mean, I, it's just a 180 degree difference from feeling lost and alone, to feeling sort of in, in deep community, intentional, and um, having found my tribe.
0: Okay, so I, I understand, you know, what you want in a friend, what you don't want in a friend, what you bring to the friendship, those three columns, that's great, but, but at some point you have to go out and actually meet people. So where do you go? How, what's that process?
2: the first thing I ask you to do is just plot out a, a list of communities that you want to explore that align with your values, your interests, and your abilities, right? So today, my my interests are I love music festivals. I love social entrepreneurship. Um, I love family stuff. Cause I, I'm seven months, eight months pregnant right now, so I'm very interested in, in uh, parenting. So these are all my interests. So then I started, okay, plotting out, what are the different communities that I can connect with um, that align with these interests? And then I begin exploring them, not just as a bucket list experience where you're like, I checked it off my list, but something that you return to time and time again, that participation is such an important part of belonging, which is why church has been such a critical part of, of our, our history for thousands of years, because you're going there every Sunday. Every Sunday, you're seeing the same community members. Every Sunday, you feel that sense of belonging, that that, that sense of home.
0: You know, as I listen to you, it occurs to me, and I, and I want you to comment on this, that one of the reasons perhaps that people have trouble making friends is that listening to your process sounds well, <laughs> in some ways sounds like a lot of work, and and in other ways sounds very deliberate. Whereas when I look back at the people in my life that have been friends over the years, it wasn't a deliberate process. They were just people that I ran into that were friends of friends, or you meet them on the train or whatever, that become friends, and they may not even have the characteristics that if I really sat and thought about it, I'd want in a friend, but somehow they're just friends. It just, in other words, that friendship just happens
2: yeah I mean it's you know this is why I would say first of all you you 're one of the lucky ones, but one in four Americans have zero friends to confide in, and this number has tripled in the last thirty years one in three Americans above the age of 65, one in two above the age of 85 is socially isolated and completely alone. So, yes, I mean, there's of course, is lucky cases where you might happenstance meet people. I mean, you've interviewed thousands of people for this podcast. I'm sure many of them must have turned into friends, you know. Um, but but yeah, you're one of the lucky ones. But, but 25 to 50 percent of the population aren't so lucky. And so we have to take that time to get intentional about our tribe. And ultimately, as researchers, stone shown from Harvard that that is the single most important thing we will ever do in our lives to be healthy and wealthy and live life longer, right? Like the longest living communities, what we call the blue zone communities, the Okinawans, the Sardinians, the Seventh-day Adventists, um, the Costa Ricans. Um, they live the longest and they live the healthiest because of their communities. Um, again, Harvard has tied isolation to be as harmful to your physical health as being an alcoholic and twice as harmful as obesity. So it's it's clear that um, our isolation is killing us and it's making us sick.
0: Depending on where you live, though, and maybe not depending on where you live, identifying those people and those groups that you might want to be part of their community might be difficult to do. So how do you, in a very practical way, how do you find these groups to go check out?
2: Step one, again, once you go inside and write down your interests, like what are you interested in doing, then now you go to, meetup.com you go to I don't know if you've heard of meetup but meetup is a wonderful website that has hundreds of thousands of communities organized by city by, by what you're interested in and so you can go on meetup.com you can go on facebook groups find them. This is where on the online world can be beautiful, but don't stay on there and get caught. And that's what happens. We get caught in the endless scroll, but go on there tactically and surgically go and find the communities that, um, that align with your values and your interests and then start showing up. Like that's literally it. It's just showing up last night at a book event here in Washington, DC, where I am right now. And 80 people showed up and, you know, they didn't have to, but they came and we had this wonderful evening. No one knew each other. And by the end of it, we had set up a Facebook group. Now we're adding everybody on there. They're all going to meet up with each other. We had breakouts and everyone met and connected. So it's just really about saying yes to things, putting your shoes on and going and, 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 and basically stopping your limiting beliefs that what is life for if, if not for trying new things, if not for getting out of my comfort zone, if not for removing the mean girls of our mind, which I talk about a lot. The mean girls, or in the men case, male case, the mean boys of our mind are comparison, judgment, and perfectionism. We compare ourselves, we judge ourselves, and then we continue nitpicking ourselves as perfectionists and each other as a result. So, you know, we sit with these mean girls in the cafeteria of our minds every day, not realizing that that's actually the default of what it means to be an animal. We have to actively go and sit with the soul sisters, which are the opposite of the mean girls. So the opposite of comparison is inspiration, be inspired by those people, right? And the opposite of perfectionism is gratitude, be grateful for the people around you, not nitpicking what they're doing wrong, right? The opposite of judgment is curiosity. Why am I being judgmental of this person or my self or this moment or this thing that I'm about to do. Just get out there and do it. My my most depressed friend said to me, you know, the the single most salient and potent thing that got me out of my depression was this one word and it was curiosity. My mother, for example, she's seventy years old. This is two weeks ago. This is an incredible story. She's Japanese, English is a second language. She speaks like she's Hello, I'm from Japan and she moved to Baltimore a month ago, didn't know a single person. Instead of sitting at home and wallowing in self-pity and watching Netflix and saying, I don't know anybody. She wrote a handwritten letter that just said, Hi, my name is Mirei. I just moved to the neighborhood. I don't know anybody. I'd like to make some Japanese lady friends and not male friends. I'm happily married, but I, I want to make some Japanese lady friends and here's my phone number. If you want to be my friend, please give me a call. And then she courageously drove that letter to the closest Japanese restaurant in the neighborhood, gave it to the general manager. I'm <laughs> not even kidding. General manager of... Of the Japanese restaurant and said, excuse me, if you meet some Japanese ladies, please show them this letter. And the following week, her phone has not stopped ringing off the hook. <laughs> That's a <laughs> so great story. Three dates already. And I just was so stoked for her, you know.
0: You know what's interesting? Uh, uh, I was talking about this not long ago. That it, it is interesting that it does seem as as we get older, uh, friends fall away. They they disappear. They for whatever reason, and probably lots of different reasons in different cases. But it, it does seem that you know I have fewer friends than I used to. I had a million friends when I was in school, and and where'd they go?
2: Right. So so because here's exactly what happened. You stopped prioritizing friendships. You said, you said to me 10 minutes ago, well, you're supposed to just make friends happenstance. Like, I don't think it feels so surgical to be able to have to, you know, take the time to do it, but that's that's the beauty of life, right? Like that's what, you know, the older I get, I'm almost 40. I'm going through the process of mother, motherhood. It's a whole new journey for me. All my friends are much younger than me. I'm one of the first ones in my community to have a baby. So it's a, it's a completely new community for me too. So in many ways, Mike, I'm starting over as well, right? But it's up to you, Mike, if, you know, I don't have as many friends before. You could have if you wanted to, if you wanted to prioritize it, right? And I think that's really where it gets exciting, where where we get to push each other to say, oh, right, I haven't been prioritizing it. I have been only prioritized, or I've been so focused on my family and my kids and raising them, but now it's my turn again. They're grown up, they're out of the house.
0: This whole subject of, you know, making friends, not having enough friends, wishing you had more friends, wishing you belonged, nobody really talks about it. it it's like taboo.
2: For some reason in our society, it's, it's, it's shameful to say, I don't belong, I don't have friends. So we hide behind terms like, I'm introverted, I'm extroverted, I'm socially anxious. We, we hide behind all of these terms because we're ashamed of it so it doesn't matter how popular you're on social media we we all go through this journey of my gosh where are my friends at and and it's time that we stop shaming ourselves and being embarrassed about it just saying hey guys i'm in a new period of my life i'm, I'm just making new friends right now let's get together and play you know play cards or whatever it is and hang out and, and go to the movies and i'm starting a group and if anybody wants to join like join with me there's, there's so many simple steps that you can take um To starting a community and having the courage. The single most generous act we can do as human beings is to create community. That is it. That is the single most generous act we can do is to create community for ourselves, for each other, because when we create community for ourselves, we are happier, we are healthier, we are less anxious, we are less depressed, we are more likely to hear each other, more likely to forgive each other. So, for ourselves to create community is so generous.
0: It's such a good point you make that, you know, there is this shame around it. We can't talk about it. Gee, I wish I had more friends. uh, Will you be my friend? But but we don't. We can't. But maybe now, after listening to you, we can. Radha Agrawal has been my guest. She is an entrepreneur, a lifelong community builder, founder of Daybreaker, and author of the book, Belong. Find your people, create community, and live a more connected life. There's a link to her book in the show notes. Thanks, Rada.
2: Thanks, Mike. It's been a deep pleasure to be with you on this, uh, on this podcast.
0: Have you ever had that left out feeling because all your friends are going to the big sold-out concert and you're not? Well, instead of being sad, maybe you should rejoice, according to Sam Parker of Esquire magazine. Going to a concert, almost any concert, is objectively a horrible experience, and here's why. Parking is almost always a nightmare, and it's always expensive, and getting out of the parking lot takes just as long as the concert itself. The concert almost always starts late, but the tickets tell you to get there insanely early. The result is this endless stretch of time with nothing to do except buy overpriced drinks and overpriced merchandise. The sound is usually too loud and terrible. Concert venues typically have horrible acoustics. As the concert goes on, your fellow audience members become drunker and more obnoxious, and there are really only so many great seats in the house, and you're probably not sitting in one of them. A lot of the music that the band plays you've never heard before and probably don't ever care to hear again and when they finally do play your favorite song from 10 years ago, it, it never sounds as good as the recording that you've come to love. Then, when it's all over, we tell ourselves and everyone else how great it was. But as Mr. Parker from Esquire says, nowhere in life is there such a gulf between what we tell ourselves about an experience and what the experience is actually like. So if you don't get to go to the concert, take comfort, because what you think you missed is probably better than what you really missed. And that is Something You Should Know. Ratings and reviews are really appreciated if you have a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Mike Herbrothers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.